You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's turn in our Bibles now to the Scripture readings for this afternoon. First place we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 53, well-known passage. And then from Matthew 27, 32 to 56. And then we'll also have a reading from the Belgic Confession. However, we begin with the 53rd chapter of the prophet Isaiah. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep, Before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now to the New Testament, to Matthew twenty-seven thirty-two to 56. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head they placed the written charge against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those there, standing there, heard this, they said, He's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Let's also turn to the Belgic Confession again, to Article 21, the satisfaction of Christ, our High Priest. We believe that Jesus Christ was confirmed by an oath to be a High Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He presented Himself in our place before His Father, appeasing God's wrath by His full satisfaction, offering Himself on the tree of the cross, where he poured out his precious blood to purge away our sins, as the prophets had foretold. For it is written, Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and with his stripes we are healed. Like a lamb he was led to the slaughter, he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, verses 5, 7, and 12. And condemned as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, though he had first declared him innocent. He restored what he had not stolen, Psalm 69.4. He died as the righteous for the unrighteous, 1 Peter 3.18. He suffered in body and soul, feeling the horrible punishment caused by our sins. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground, Luke 22.44. Finally, he exclaimed, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27.46. All this He endured for the forgiveness of our sins. Therefore, we justly say with Paul that we know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2.2 We count everything as loss 
because of the, unsurpa- the, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, our Lord. Philippians 3.8 We find comfort in His wounds and have no need to seek or invent any other means of reconciliation with God than this only sacrifice, once offered, by which the believers are perfected for all times. Hebrews 10.14 This is also the reason why the angel of God called Him Jesus, that is, Savior, because He would save His people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse 21. This afternoon we are considering the truth of God's Word as it's been summarized and confessed by the church in Lord's Day 15. What do you confess when you say that He suffered? During all the time He lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by His suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, He has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did He suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? Though innocent, Christ was condemned by an earthly judge, and so He freed us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby, I am assured that He took upon Himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, this morning we touched briefly on the offense of the cross of Christ. We noted that in the Greek, Roman, and Jewish worlds, the cross was regarded as a stumbling block and as foolishness. Jewish historian Flavius Josephus called crucifixion the most wretched of deaths. Cicero, an ancient Roman philosopher, discouraged people from even speaking or writing about crucifixion and the cross because... He said it was too disgusting, it was too gruesome for decent people. Well, flash forward to today, to the 21st century, and the cross is a fashion item. For rappers and rockers, a gold cross or two is a necessary piece of bling. It's the most famous and popular symbol in all of history. And today, for all its popularity... Its meaning and message are all but lost. What it symbolizes has been obscured and been forgotten by the masses. The cross of Christ and the suffering that led to it are at the heart of the good news that Christians believe and that Christians cherish. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, And we heard it in the Belgian Confession as well. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And in Galatians 6.14, he writes in a similar way, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross and the suffering that led to it that is included with it, it's all central to the message we believe. Because through all that, Christ bore the curse that belongs to me 
to you, to all of us. And so I preach to you God's Word summarized with that theme, Christ Jesus bore my curse. We'll consider His suffering, His condemnation, and then last of all, His crucifixion. Now when we speak about the suffering of our Lord Jesus, our tendency is to focus on the end of His life, especially the last day or two. And artistic treatments of His suffering, His passion, haven't really helped in that regard. Now passion means suffering. And in the world of classical music, there have been various portrayals of Christ's suffering, His passion. And in fact, while I was preparing this sermon, I was listening to one of those, to St. Matthew's Passion by J.S. Bach. And Bach's St. Matthew's Passion begins, not with his birth, but with the events leading up to the Last Supper. And this gives the impression that that's really where his suffering begins, at the Last Supper. However, the Catechism draws our attention to the fact that he suffered during all the time that he lived on earth. We saw it this morning as well. People were offended at him. At the beginning of his life already, he had a death sentence hanging over him, forcing his family to flee into Egypt. Herod was trying to kill him, even when he was a baby. During his ministry, people mocked him and ridiculed him. He was ignored by some and used by others. He was confronted by sickness, death, the brokenness of human existence. The Lord Jesus encountered unbelief and rebellion against God. In all these ways and more, the Son of God suffered during His entire time on earth. And it was all predicted, it was all prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 53. Isaiah prophesied that he would be despised and rejected by men. When Isaiah said that, he didn't say, well, that was just going to be for a day or two. Isaiah said that he would be a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. That means that sorrow and suffering would characterize his entire 33 years. Isaiah said that he was despised and people did not esteem him. Again, this is something he had to face upon waking up every morning of his time on earth. In that suffering his entire life, he was bearing the wrath of God against our sin. You've heard that so many times, but loved ones, don't just let that thought float by without grasping it and standing in awe of it. He came down among us and he suffered in your place. He took all the humiliation, all the ridicule. He took everything as part of the wrath of God that we deserve. He took it all so that we could receive the opposite of what we deserve. But it was especially at the end that this wrath of God against human sin became the perfect, deadly storm. At the end... In his last 24 hours, the Lord Jesus experienced to the uttermost the total revulsion that God has for sin and for sinners. We should have been the ones betrayed by our closest friends, rejected by everyone, 
We should have been the ones beaten and mocked with a crown of thorns on our head. We should have had the flesh whipped off our backs and been spit upon. We should have gone to the cross naked and utterly humiliated. If we had been there, it wouldn't have been as innocent lambs going to the slaughter, but as Willie Pickton's, Paul Bernardo's, and Carla Homolka's getting our rightful due, receiving justice. It should have been me. It should have been you. The wonder of the Gospel, stand in awe of it again, is that that Jesus Christ did it for me and for you. He took our place. The wrath that we deserved, He took it for us. The Catechism says that His suffering is the only atoning sacrifice. That means that His sacrifice, all His suffering, makes us at one with God. Atone, the word atone, literally means to make at one. Without Christ and His suffering and His death for us, God is an enemy. And God's wrath is our due. But 1 John 4, verse 10 tells us that Christ Jesus came to be the propitiation for our sins. We heard that that word last week too, propitiation. That means that He is the sacrifice that turns God's wrath away from us. He takes it square between the eyes so that we might be accepted by God and never more forsaken by Him. The result is that He has redeemed us, body and soul, from the everlasting damnation that we deserve. God's wrath is that everlasting damnation that waits for all who do not believe, for all who do not accept the promise of the Gospel. But for all who do, for all who accept this gift of God and say, yes, it was for me that Christ endured this horrible suffering. For you, the benefits of Christ, all of them, are yours. And what are those benefits? Catechism mentions the grace of God. Grace, getting the opposite of what you deserve. Being formerly an enemy of God and now being received into His family. Mentions righteousness. That means being right with God. That means not only having your sins erased, that you get a clean slate, that you get to start over again. It means that that slate that's erased is filled up again. And it's filled up with good works. All the good works of Christ done for you and on your behalf. It means that that slate is never going to stop being full. And it can never, ever become erased. It can never become dirty ever again. That's amazing. Good news, isn't it? And it doesn't stop there because there's also eternal life. The life that lasts forever. Because of Christ and all that He's done, we have the promise of living with God forever in the new heavens and new earth. Eternal bliss. A perfect blessedness such as no one has ever seen, heard, or thought of. That benefit too has been won for us by Christ our Savior. An important thing to keep in mind is that He did all this for us. Last Sunday afternoon, we noted that He was actually
actively involved with the incarnation. He did it. His active involvement doesn't stop with his suffering and death. Now, his obedience and his suffering is sometimes called his passive obedience. And that's sometimes distinguished from his active obedience. As if active and passive are opposites. Now, in the way we normally speak, active and passive are usually opposites. However, in this case, they're not. When we talk about his passive obedience, it's part, it's included with his active obedience. And it refers specifically to his obedience in suffering. Remember what I mentioned about St. Matthew's passion? The word passion? Passion means suffering. Passive also means suffering when we talk about Christ's passive obedience, His suffering obedience. It doesn't mean that He wasn't active in His suffering. He was. And we can see that in a number of places in Scripture. But just take our reading from, from Matthew 27 and see what's there. He refused to drink the wine mixed with gall. Now that that mixture was usually given to people who were crucified in order to to dull their senses, to make their suffering, to to take the edge off their suffering, make it easier. He actively chose to fully and consciously experience the wrath of God against human sin. And in verse 50, when he died, he didn't take the role of a victim but we're told that he actively gave up his spirit. Also in his death, he did it for me, for you, for all who believe. As the Belgic Confession emphasizes in Article 21, he presented himself in our place before his Father, appeasing God's wrath by his full satisfaction, offering himself on the tree of the cross, where he poured out his precious blood to purge away our sins as the prophets had foretold. Notice how all the verbs there are active. He presented, he appeased, he offered, he poured out, he did it all. Now it's important to stress that point today. We call what we've been talking about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Christ was our substitute, taking the wrath of God on Himself instead of having us receive the wrath of God forever in hell. Well, today, some popular preachers and writers strongly object to this doctrine of substitutionary atonement. They call it cosmic child abuse. They say God the Father punishes His Son who he says he loves, for what somebody else did. They say that if substitutionary atonement is true, then God is a child abuser. And that makes him wicked. And who wants to believe in a wicked God? But the important point that such a criticism misses is that the Son agreed to come into the world fully. He didn't have to be coerced. He didn't have to be forced. 
He willingly agreed. The son agreed to suffer and to go to the cross. And not only did he agree, but he also actively and he willingly participated. Psalm 40, come to do your will, O my God. This was no cosmic child abuse, but an act of love on the part of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to save sinners who didn't deserve it, and who in fact deserved the very opposite. The cosmic child abuse argument, it just doesn't hold water. The Catechism goes on in question and answer 38 to consider Christ's condemnation under Pontius Pilate as judge. Now remember, we're dealing with the Apostles' Creed here, and besides the Lord Jesus and His mother, Pilate is the only other human being mentioned in the Creed. The fundamental statement of beliefs for millions of Christians mentions a Roman politician, a third or fourth ranking Roman politician, not even very high, but a Roman politician who happened to be very crooked. Why mention him? Well, mention of him, for one thing, establishes the historicity of what happened in Jesus' trial and death. In other words, by mentioning him, we know for sure that it's historical, that all this really happened. Pilate was an historical figure. He appears in other historical documents. Everyone knows that he was the Roman governor of Judah at that point in history. He represented the political power of the Roman Empire. Christ was innocent. But because of the power plays between Pilate and the Jews, he was condemned to die. Pilate recognized that Jesus had done nothing wrong, but yet the Jewish leaders continued to insist on having him put to death. And because he was afraid for his own political future, Pilate gave in. And condemned him. Now Pilate was completely responsible for his actions. He chose to take this course. And he was culpable. He was blameworthy for his decisions in this. Yet Jesus said to him in John 19 verse 11, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate's power came from God. And Pilate's role in this was all part of God's plan. In Acts 4, we read about the believers being gathered together. And as they were gathered together, they prayed. And when they did, they referred back to what had happened on that day when Jesus was condemned. In Acts 4, 27-28, we read, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Should happen, rather. So when Pilate condemned Jesus, he was personally responsible, but yet he was also God's instrument to bring about our redemption. Through the condemnation that Pilate laid on Christ, we have been freed from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Again, notice the theme of substitution here. We were to have God's judgment on us, but instead, Christ took it for us. 
Now, instead of judgment falling on us, we have blessings. God is our Father. We are His children. God is our shepherd. We are the sheep He loves. God is our rock and our refuge. We're safe. God is our fortress and our high tower. His and our enemies can't touch us. And that brings us to the crucifixion of our Lord and its special meaning. To begin with, we should be clear about what the crucifixion involved. We have a word in English, excruciating. That word is derived from the Latin for cross. Excruciating is the word to describe crucifixion. To make sure that those who were crucified suffered as much as possible, the Romans usually scourged someone beforehand. This scourging was so severe that many people died from it without even making it to the cross. Christ's hands were chained above His head and He was whipped with a cat of nine tails. Cat of nine tails was a, a whip, long whip with a number of long leather straps and on the end of each of those leather straps was a lead ball. That wasn't bad enough. Some of the straps had hooks that would catch the flesh of the one to be crucified and tear it off. As the scourging progressed, skin, muscle, tendons, even bones would come off. Victims typically shouted in agony, shook violently, and bled heavily. This is why Isaiah 52 verse 14 speaks about his appearance becoming disfigured and his form marred beyond human likeness. Somebody would look at him, not even recognize him as being human. The Roman soldiers made a crown of thorns and were told that they pressed it into his head as he was mocked as the king of the Jews. Blood would have flowed down his head copiously and matted his beard. He was stripped to his underclothes and his robe was used as the pot in a gambling game. And then he was forced to carry the crossbar of his cross to Golgotha, to the place of his crucifixion. This crossbar would have been about a 100 pounds, and he had to carry it on his scourged and bloodied back and shoulders. Crosses were often recycled, so the cross was probably already covered with the blood of others who had been crucified before him. But the Lord Jesus was so beat down from not getting any sleep the night before and from his scourging, from other factors, that he couldn't do it. He couldn't carry the crossbar any farther. And so a man named Simon was enlisted to do it. And when they arrived at Golgotha, the typical crucifixion routine would have followed. Jesus' beard would have been pulled out. He would have been spat on some more. He would have been mocked. And he was stripped completely naked. This morning we heard about how our Savior was a carpenter. Now this carpenter would have had five to seven inch rough metal spikes driven through his wrists and through his feet. He would have been nailed to the cross as the cross lay flat on the ground. And then the cross was then 
tilted upwards, lifted up, and dropped into a prepared hole. And as it dropped, his completely naked body would have convulsed and shook violently. At this point, many victims labored to breathe and they would go into shock. History records that many crucifixion victims quickly became incontinent. They could be on the cross for days, frequently passing in and out of consciousness. They would be exposed to the elements of sun, wind, and rain, to mention nothing of flies and other pests. All this was done in a public place. Someone once pointed out that in today's world, it would be like nailing a bloodied naked man above the front entrance to a grocery store. Whether death came slowly or whether death came quickly, it was usually by suffocation, asphyxiation, sometimes because of shock. It was grotesque. And we too easily forget that. We prefer a sanitized cross. We easily forget that the cross was a picture of His hellish agony in body and soul, the likes of which we'll never know. We easily forget that it was endured by our Savior for us and in our place. We should have been there. We should have been on that cross. But He did it instead of us. Again, loved ones, please don't let that thought ever cease to draw your hearts upward in gratitude to God. The cross is where we find grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The cross is where He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. The cross is where the punishment that brought straying sheep peace came upon the innocent Lamb of God. The cross is where we see the wounds by which we have been healed. The cross is where we find good news for sinners. The cross is the heart of the Gospel. Through the cross, I am assured that Christ took upon Himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Yes, the catechism is right. In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 21-23, God says that anyone hung on a tree or on a cross was, in fact, cursed by Him. Utterly rejected and forsaken. This is also the way in which His cry of Psalm 22 makes sense. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Forsaken is another word for cursed. God did not merely turn His back on Jesus as if to ignore Him or to forget about Him, but He actively poured out His wrath on Him. The cross is a graphic, raw picture of the suffering He endured. God's wrath came upon His entire person, not just His body. He suffered in His whole person, body and soul. And in so doing, the Lord Jesus received the curse we deserved. The result is that I can be assured, you can be assured, that Christ took our curse. 
And when the curse is gone, brothers and sisters, what's left? We're not left standing on some sort of neutral ground, left to try and find our own way. No, if the curse is gone, then we're blessed by God. Then we're not only on our way back to the garden, we're on our way to something far better. The glory of the second Adam far surpasses that of the first. And it's the second with whom we have union. And it's the second into whose image we're being transformed. And so it's not just paradise restored, but paradise that will blow your mind. Paradise that will leave you praising God forever. Brothers and sisters, the gospel and the cross are inseparable through the cross and the suffering that led up to it and included it. The greatest problem that we have has been dealt with by God. For all who believe, through the cross, God has taken our sins and removed them from us as far as east is from the west. He says that He has thrown them into the depths of the sea. He promises to remember them no more. Opening the way for us to have a healthy relationship of fellowship with Him. Our Father. And let me just finish by again encouraging all of us to be sure today that this is the Gospel we're believing. That this is the Gospel which grips our hearts. Which is compelling us also to a life of gratitude. Love and glory giving. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our faithful Savior, thank You for bearing in body and soul the wrath that we deserved. We thank You that You did that Your entire life, but especially at the end. Lord, we adore You for having made the only atoning sacrifice so that we can be beneficiaries of grace, righteousness, and life eternal. We will always be grateful that You were condemned by Pilate even though you were innocent, and that you did that for us so that we would not have severe judgment fall on us. As we consider your cross this afternoon, Lord Jesus, we thank you for taking our curse upon yourself, for giving us the assurance that the curse is gone and that there is now no condemnation for those who are in you. Help us with your spirit. Help us with your word to treasure this gospel message and to believe it every day of our lives. Please hear us for your own name's sake. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.